Kelly, if you were given a choice between working as an executive for a hundred thousand a year or working as a screenwriter for twenty five thousand a year, which would you choose? Uh, well, first of all, um, executives make a lot more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. So uh, I actually had to make that decision the top of 2020 when I was offered a promotion at uh, at HBO and I was going to make $100,000 more than I made currently and I turned it down because I also you know they made me an offer to take a first look writing deal and I I jumped at it and it was probably half of what I was making so I've actually had this question in real time in real life and there's nothing like it I would never I think if I if I went back and had to do it all over again, I would make the same choice. There's just nothing like waking up every day in pure joy and knowing that the the first thing that I get to do is crack open my computer, and the last thing I'm doing all day is you know still being you know wired into that computer, just downloading everything that's in my head. So there's just getting paid to write. There's just no question. Do you think you would have really taken that? Let's say. I know you, you had some jobs out of college where you were, you know, as sort of an admin assistant or helping agents, things like that. But the, the lure of, of six figures or more, um, do you think that it takes time to realize what is important? Well, let me see if I, if I understand your question. Um, if you're saying that it, did it take me 30 years to know that I wanted to be a writer? I don't, I don't know that I... I don't think I was consciously aware in all of that time that I was an executive that I was planning on making a transition. I think I had started out as a writer's assistant when I was, you know, just coming out of college. It was one of my, I think it was my third job that I'd ever had in the entertainment business. And I knew that I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a part of the creative process. And I tried casting and I knew that that wasn't really it, even though I loved the process. I loved the people that I was working with. And I think I was looking for my place, and I, it felt right because I'd always been writing. I'd been writing, you know, since I was a kid, you know, creating short plays and short stories, and you know, doing all of those things. Actually, creating a magazine so uh, for my family. So I knew that I wanted to somehow channel all of that into writing. But when I was coming out of college, the world was very different than it is now. There just weren't a lot of places for an African American young woman who wanted to write. In, in the ecosystem. And when I looked around, I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me, either in, either in the executive ranks or as a, as, a, as a writer on staff of a show. So I felt as though there were not a whole lot of doors that were open for me. There were not a lot of places that I could go. So I think if, if the world had been different, if I had come out now as a writer, if I was, was doing that, you know, and I was 20-something years old and doing it now, boy, sky's the limit. But at the time, I made the best choice that I could with the information that I could and with the knowledge that I needed to make a living and that there were not going to be a lot of opportunities for me. So, um, so I do feel as though going into as an executive route was the perfect place for me because I could still work with the creative. I could still be a part of that writing process only from the, hey, let me help you you know, let's talk about your project. Let's figure out where you want to go and how to get there. And 
and the packaging part that you do as you're in a network executive or as a feature executive. So I do feel as though it really satisfied a lot of those cravings of working with material. And I think I was really good at it. Um, and I got a chance to see the industry from a very, very different perspective than a lot of writers do. So I saw the in, inner workings and realized, oh, there's so many different de decisions that get in, you know, that are part of the, of the creative process that are on the business side that you don't see as a writer. You only know the, the work that you've put out, but you don't know all the other things that make into the decision-making process of why this thing moves forward versus something else that doesn't move forward. And then once it does move forward, well, what else do you have to do in order to support that piece of material, you know, from the marketing and, and advertising and all of the other aspects of it? So I think I got a really great insider view into the business on both the feature side and the TV side that I probably wouldn't have had. So I kind of feel like I got baked in a different way. I was always writing, though, and I think that the, that, um, that need for me to express myself on the page was always there. So I don't think you have to go through 30 years of, you know, how I did it. That was just a, a kind of a, a weird way to, you know, for me to do it. But I know that there are also, there's also a very long legacy of, of executives who turned writers. I don't know that they talk about it, but, um, but it's not like I blazed a whole new path. Um, and I, I, feel, I do feel like, you know, I sort of got to the right place at the right time. Okay, so maybe not the 30-year journey, maybe if you were to give advice to someone on a paycheck versus feeling creatively fulfilled. Well, I think that's always the balance, isn't it? You know, I was actually just uh, talking to a group of people recently about that, you know, art versus commerce and how much, you know, can you survive on while you are fulfilling your dream and how and what does success look like to you? So, you know, there may be writers who are, are completely content having, you know, doing plays in, in um, regional theater, you know, and that's a success as a writer. So I think whatever you feel as though your calling is in this, it doesn't have to be that you're winning an Oscar, it doesn't have to be that you're making a Marvel feature, you know, you can write and be satisfied by that writing and create in so many different ways. And yeah, the money thing is, is, is hard, it's harder when you get Older, it's certainly harder. If I did this when I was 24 years old and right out of college, and my, I think my rent at the time, this is back in 80-something, um, my rent at the time was $450 a month. That was it. That's all I had to, to make to cover that nut. Now it's like I got a mortgage. I've got three kids. There was college education. You know, there's a lot more that, you know, there's, there's car insurance. There's homeowners insurance. There's so many things that just become so much more oppressive and you have to make different choices based on what's coming in and what's not coming in. Um, I have the luxury now of having an expertise in something that people want that then can support me as I also pursue this writing. So if it's not, if it's a lean month, you know, I'll have something to fall back on. That's the benefit, you know, and I think also my age, you know, at, at my age now, there be, there's a, 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 I don't know if it's, it's like a, a feeling of being settled and knowing that you have worth and you have value that I don't think I had when I was in my 20s. In my 20s, I thought, oh, it's going to be my last job ever. It was always the thing. Oh, my God, they're never going to hire me. I'm never going to work again. You don't have that when you're in your 50s because you know you've got something that you're bringing to the table. What about 
peer pressure, family pressure to make money, or maybe it's not even spoken. It's just, oh, hey, it's a family get together and so-and-so, they just, now they're partner at a new firm. <laughs> and what are you up to? You know, that kind of thing where, you know, right. you feel like you have to explain yourself. I think uh, I, I have the benefit of coming from a family that's incredibly supportive. And my mother, who is my biggest cheerleader, and uh, and every single morning, you know, calls me up and says, you know, calls me her precious child and just thinks that I'm a genius. So I think that that's that helps. Um, and when I made this decision to to jump off the edge of the cliff, I have I know exactly when it was. I could probably even pinpoint the day and the moment because it was very, very important to me. I happened to be at Sundance. I was in the episodic lab. This is 2019. It was in October. It was the day before we were going to finish the program. And uh, and it probably was a Saturday, actually, if I'm really being specific. Um, and I was in line to get my uh, to get dinner. It was a buffet line. And my daughter calls me and we had this conversation. And I asked her, I said, I said, Lily, I think I might want to give this a shot. And she said, Oh, wow. Okay. She said, if not now, mom, when? And for me, I was like, I birthed the right child because I said, look, we might actually end up having to have, you know, make some choices financially. Because look, I was coming off of a really nice SVP job at a major studio, you know, network. And, uh, and she just said, uh, hey, we'll be okay. We'll figure it out. And at this point, I think my my kids were, I think I was probably, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think if I just graduated from my MFA program or I think I had just graduated from my MFA program and they my kids were still in school. So they were still, you know, it was their last year of college and I think her last year of um, maybe of her uh, graduate school. And, and again, I feel like there was just this understanding that we could all figure it out together and that it wasn't that important that the trappings of life the cars the house the whatever the vacations that we would go on were just not that important compared to mom finding herself and i i just couldn't have asked for a better um support system so i do feel as though when you're when you're somebody who doesn't have that, when you have to really struggle and you have to do that for yourself, you do need to find people who are going to um, acknowledge your dream and support your dream and to encourage your dream. Because I think that a lot of writers, I think that's the, probably the biggest thing. That's, the, that's one of the biggest hurdles. I think imposter syndrome and the, the fact that no one's in your corner saying, hey, keep going, that's what makes us give up, right? That's what makes us feel like, you know, maybe we're, you know, charging the wrong direction or we're we're not on the right path because there are all these pressures. There are all these people who, who, um, you know, until you until you've made something, until you've until you've gotten that acknowledgement, you don't know if you're doing the right thing. You just don't know. And I've, I think I've seen a lot of interviews with a lot of people who have made it and they still don't know. They still worry. They still don't know if what they have created is anything that's worthy of being seen or shown or read. So I do feel as though there's a, um, there's, you got to close that gap someplace.
And luckily I had, I had a whole team of people who were willing to help me close that gap. Does Lily want to be a writer? Creative. You know, I keep asking Lily if she would if she would do it. She's a beautiful writer. She had to write. She she uh, went to college and got a a degree in uh, American studies and film. And the the pieces that she wrote were just wonderful. It drives her bananas. She doesn't love the process. But I think that's also maybe a factor of age as well because at that age for me writing was a chore and and I did not enjoy it. Now I enjoy it. Now I enjoy the the cracking it open, trying to figure out the pieces of the puzzle that make it work. So it might be that she will get to there eventually, which she, which she is amazing at. And by the way, she's my assistant now and I'm, I'd be lost without her. But what she's amazing at is finding material. So she will, because she's an avid reader, and I'm, I believe her, she and her sister Sarah last year read between 35 and 38 books. Just, and that's just them. That's, they just churn and consume material. And she found me a project that ended up getting an offer from a studio. So she's really good and I really trust her instincts. So I would love it if she would write. Uh, I'm not sure that she will, but uh, I'm also seeing if she, I would push her to, if she wanted to be a development executive, she'd be great at it. What's the difference between helping other people achieve their dreams and pursuing your own dreams? Well, I think that, um, for sure, pursuing my own dreams is scarier. It's a lot easier to help somebody else. But I've often said that helping someone achieve their dreams is it's like there's like a crack high. I've never done crack, but I imagine it's like the crack high that uh, that you would get just because um, it is truly intoxicating. And um, and I've been in that that business that world for a long time you know as a, as a as an executive you're constantly you're green lighting things or you're you know pushing something forward or you're introducing someone to some some key relationship um, or you're hiring a staff for a show or a director and making that phone call is is an amazing phone call I remember when I when I uh, we were picking up living single and, uh, and I happened to be at home and my boss at the time, Tom Noonan said, hey, you can make this phone call. He says, this is your show, you can make this phone call. And I called Yvette Lee Bowser and, um, and, uh, and I screamed in her ear. And it was such a high pitched scream because I was so excited. And, uh, and there was this sort of pause on the other end of the call. And she's like, I didn't hear a thing that you just said. <laughs> I was, because I was so excited. So it's um, it's a really wonderful feeling to be able to support somebody. I think it's easy for me because, you know, there are. I think there there may be the difference between when someone is is just starting out, particularly, and I've you know obviously worked with a lot of writers, writers and directors who are just emerging. Um, what they need most, besides the acknowledgement, the encouragement, and the just the you know the general support of helping shape a piece of material. Is they really need those connections and I've got a lot of connections and so making those phone calls is not hard for me and that's part of it and what I find the differences between people who are just emerging and, and struggling and the people who are are really firing on all cylinders is sometimes their network let's just say everything equal and the materials all equal and they're great people everywhere which I do find that they're great people everywhere the people who are connected and the people who are are we're able to create relationships for 
those relationships exponentially just, you know, just explode. And, um, and so I just lend my, at this point, for many of those, I just lend my connections. And that's the difference between, you know, someone getting moving forward and someone not getting moving forward oftentimes. So, um, so that part's easy for, for myself. It's harder because I sit there and I'm wallowing in my own material. Right. And sometimes you're trying to figure out, well, what do you do next? And how do you navigate? You're trying to put your business hat on and go, well, if I work on this, it's going to take me away from that. So what am I going to do? And what's the material I'm putting out in the marketplace? And then I have to really tap into my own personal mishigas about, well, what's my stuff that I want to, you know, what do I want to say? And who do I want to be? And that takes a lot of work, emotional work, that making a phone call does not, does not tax my brain, but doing my own personal work is, uh, is hard. So I do think, you know, focusing on myself has been a little bit of a challenge, but I think it's, I think it's also time, right? Do you think that maybe being conditioned to feel guilty for wanting to do something on your own? I mean, you know, there's a there's an air of selfishness with any creative pursuit where it seems like, oh, well, it's one of these sort of, you know, artists that they're just going to disregard everything and and go off and, and create. Is, is there is there some kind of a stigma with wanting to do your own thing creatively? I don't know. I think for me, I'm at this place in my life where I'm, I've got an empty nest. And even if my kids are here, they're adult kids. So they know that if I'm going to lock myself away, that it's okay. I think it gets a little harder with my mother who wants to go to Costco every week. And I'm like, can we just go to Costco? And Costco now, it used to be like going to Costco with mom was a, you know, you're in and out in 45 minutes. And if, you know, you leave with a bunch of stuff. And now she likes to linger. And when I when she asked me if she want if I want to go to Costco with her, the guilt that I feel about now I really don't want to spend two hours in Costco. That's and and it seems trivial, but I think that's indicative of when someone else is asking for your time, and when that person is really important to you and you want to give that time, but you don't always want to give that time all the time. Then yeah, you have to make some choices. Sometimes that family, you know. Uh, dinner is like the last thing you want to do. So you have to negotiate. It's important to negotiate your family time for sure. They've got great uh, samples. They do have great samples, yeah. although they're not always vegetarian samples. And that's right. my issue. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. And from being on the other end of doing uh, samples in the past, you, you meet people that they want to talk to you and that's their only outlet right mm. there. And and could be vice versa. And it's mutual. Right. But I know you had written some um, posts about riding the bus. Yes. And and some the interesting people that you had met. And it's the same for probably doing some of these samples and, and some of the people you encounter in the grocery stores. That was one of the best. Uh, you know, I think COVID shut down my bus riding quite considerably. But from 2015 to 2020, I rode the bus exclusively. And, and very rarely was I in a car. And it was the best, most, I don't know, um, relaxing time. You would not think that it would be. But I think, you know, if you're obviously, if you're stressed for time, um, and there was one day that I was trying to do it, going to, uh, getting to the airport to go to India, and it, I was stressed like crazy because it was a bus ride that took way longer than it should have. But uh, for the most part, I met so many amazing people. I learned about my town, my city. I, I really got a chance to engage 
with a lot of the world in a way that I hadn't in a really long time. And it's a weird thing to say because in you know New York, you're always in public transportation. In LA, you're not. You're usually in a car. But it was, it was a pretty um, magical kind of you know five years that I I do look forward to. And I'm a I'm a talker anyway, so I will I will chat people up at the drop of a hat. So just put me in a place where there's more people <laughs> and I'll start talking. Why wasn't it okay for you to pursue your writing dreams when you were a little bit younger? Well, uh, when I was coming out of college, my stepdad, who has who passed away just before COVID, um, uh, we, uh, we had a very interesting conversation. Again, I remember exactly where we had this conversation. It was on the, the back stoop of his house and um, he wanted me to have a real job and he was concerned. He was concerned that I wasn't going to be able to make a living in the industry and so he had recommended that I take a secretarial job working for a company downtown. I think it was an interior design company. It couldn't have been farther from who I was personally because I'm a, I have terrible tastes in decorating. And um, and I know where it came from. It came from his fear that you know that I needed to have some some means of support. And he had grown up in the depression, and his father was I believe his father was a dentist, and he he ended up going into the dental field, and he was a dentist. But what he really wanted to be was a writer, and he'd written some books along the way. He'd written them about dentistry. Um, if you want to buy one, it's J.W. Friedman. I don't know. You can look him up. But um, but he had never really ventured out and and took it seriously or took himself seriously. And the sto short stories that he wrote were just beautiful. And I considered at one point making one of them into a short film. But it's just just beautiful work. And then he decided he'd had this this idea sort of locked away inside of him for years and he finally wrote it in his 70s. And it's a book out there. Um, I don't I don't even know where you can find it now, but um, I think it's called The Seventh Millennium and it's uh, you know, it's it's not my cup of tea, but it's it's certainly everything it's a, it's it's underneath it's about his first marriage and there's like a lot of themes that come up for him and it was his magnum opus. It was his thing that he wanted to put out there. And, and he wrote this one little book and, uh, and then talked about it for the, the next 20 years of his life. And I think his concern was that, I think it was a real fear that I think a lot of parents have about their kids. Are they going to make it? Or are they not going to be able to make this happen for themselves? So, so that coupled with you know the, the parental pressure from him, on the other hand, my mom's going, go for it, do whatever you want, it's okay. Um, but that combined with I needed to make real money and the job that I had at the time, you know, when I was a writer's assistant was probably barely making, you know, rent. Um, but again, it's trying to figure out, well, what's the trajectory and how can you pursue it? And when you don't see people who are doing it um, and you don't see that there's a pathway and, and I was writing on a show, uh, a, a writer's assistant on a show where it was too... Latino leads and an entirely white male writer's room. And even that's even in my own, you know, so basically my own backyard and I can't seem to figure out and navigate how to do, how to get in there. 
I think that there's uh, there's societal things that happen where you know, and I think and I don't think that this is unusual. I think if you look back and and hear a lot of stories from a lot of people around that time and even before, it was a hard business to break into. It still is a hard business to break into, and when you're a woman of color, you know you've got a couple of you know. Um, you know the pathways were were just not plentiful, so I think that if I if I had been I don't know that I knew I, I don't think I had any other options I don't think I was missing anything um, I think I was in the I was doing the right things I was writing the scripts I was working on my craft I do think that there was a frustration at a certain point where I did stop writing because it was just too painful but I think I also got in my own head and I think if I had if I was going to give anybody some advice now or even if I was going to talk to myself you know back in the 80s I would have said just keep writing and I think I also didn't understand at the time that I had something to say I think I was really probably putting up a roadblock because I thought well all the ideas out there are big ideas all of those things that are getting made are are more interesting than I am not realizing that you are a wealth of story I am a wealth of story and I just have to dig deep enough to figure out well what story do I want to tell I could tell a story about riding on the bus and it could be an emotional heartfelt amazing story I at the time probably would not have recognized that but it took me a long time and a and a pathway through the executive ranks in order to get to the other side and go oh yeah yeah there's value in in just about everything I think you've said write for emotion, not for gimmicks. Yeah, I think that um, I think sometimes writers, particularly when writers are starting from um, concepts and not really delving into the reason why people show up, which is the character. You know, characters are motivated by their emotions, right? So when you are writing and you're writing from just plot, it's less engaging. Than if you're writing from character, well, what is this character going to do? Why would they want to do this? What's the reason? You know, who are the stakes that they're doing it for? When you've got those things and you're working from the inside out, it's a lot more emotional. It's a lot. I, I will connect to your material a lot more. We will all feel something when you know when you're writing from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. And you could start with the outside. Obviously, you need something, you know, a plot to hang it on. But if you're not doing the work underneath it, if you're just giving, you know, cool fight scenes, and you're not really delving into, well, why is there a fight scene? Then you're going to lose your audience for sure. So let's say if I'm doing a coming of age drama of some woman that's hanging out at Venice Beach all the time, and she's kind of floundering, and she's doesn't know if she's going to go to college, doesn't know if she can even afford to go. But it, it's a cool gimmick and we can have cool skateboarders and all these interesting characters around her. But I'm not getting to really her story. It's, it's too flat. Well, I think you have to get underneath the character and figure out, well, what is she really motivated? What does she want to do? What's her goal? Because you don't want a passive character who's just sitting on the beach. You want someone who wants to do something. So what is that something? And then why does she want to do that thing? So if you have to, you know, it, writing is 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 really unearthing so much of, um, you know, you have to get underneath everything in order to have something that really resonates. 
And, uh, and that's the hard part. That's the hard work that sometimes writers don't want to do. It's scary because it's, uh, you know, you have to tap into your own stuff. And when you tap into your own stuff, um, then you can, you know, then you can share it with somebody else and they can, they can tap into theirs. And isn't that really why we're doing all this anyway? We're sharing emotions. Otherwise, who cares? <laughs> right? Who was the first character that you, you felt a connection with? Oh, my goodness. A television character? Film, television, in a book, where you really felt like you were in that person's skin. You knew, you knew that world. You knew who they were. Wow. That's a... I don't even know. I don't even know if I could rewind the tapes to tell you where that first person was. Although I will tell you, there may have been, okay, this is going to sound really weird, but it's a children's book. One of my very favorite children's books was a book, and I don't even know, I don't think it's in print anymore. It's called Anne Likes Red. Red, 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 a blue dress, Anne. No, I like red, 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 red. I read it so much. And I don't know if that was because I, I think it might have been because there was so much of me in that. I loved Red, but I also just loved her determination, that she was really focused, that there was just this um, sense of this young girl. And I again, I must have been a, in grade school, if not even before. It's probably you know preschool book where I just, I memorized every single line of that book. You know what? I do, I do know what it was. I do know what it was that just sparked something. So there was another book at around the same time when I was really young. And again, I don't know if I could even tell you the name of it. But it was a book about a young girl who had all these dolls and they were all of all different colors from all different countries. And she wanted a doll that looked just like her. And I, I think at the very end, the, the doll maker made her a doll that looked exactly like her. Now she happened to be a blonde, little blonde girl. But the fact that there were that this book had dolls that looked like me, there were all sorts of beautiful dolls in different clothing from different countries. And again, that was something that I think for me was like, yeah, there's there's difference. And I'm one of the different ones. I'm one of the other ones. And wouldn't I love a doll that looked like me? And I identified with the girl, but I also identified with all those other dolls because I looked like that. Um, so yeah, oh, is that, that's a really interesting little piece of like something that you just unearthed there. That's interesting. I'm gonna have to find that book. I think I, I know. I do know that I still have. I still have that book. I, I own that book someplace, um, and I'll have to figure that out. Very cool. I just, I don't know why. I was just, yeah, thinking. That, I know, because Cost Plus World Market, they would have these different little dolls, very international. Yeah. And I always liked going there, too, because it wasn't, you know, yeah, I had a Barbie and a Skipper and all right, that. Right. But it was it was just like, <laughs> you know, just the same thing every time. Yes. Perfectly straight hair, which I couldn't have, you know. Right, so. right, right. <laughs> yeah, I think there was that whole, I had a lot of Madame Alexander dolls. And oh, okay. I had a lot of different um, different colors and, you know, different dresses and, Yeah. That was a great book. I wonder if there's a movie in that book. I bet there's a movie in that book. Oh, okay. There you go. Adaptation. <laughs> Why do you say the best ideas are personal? Okay, so I'll say I'll say this for in a and maybe let's see if we can come at it for a couple of different ways. So, um, 
it's obviously difficult to to write a screenplay or to write a, a, a pilot, right? It's it's a hard thing to do. If everybody did it, it there there'd be a bajillion of them. They were just amazing. It's hard to do. But again, as we talked about connecting and being able to understand those characters, you really need to get underneath all of those, all of the 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 trappings of this is a really cool story to get to the why of it all and the um and the emotion. Because again, that's what's gonna make you want to lean forward. It's gonna make you want to come see it again. It's gonna make you want to show up week to week, right? Is if you know and understand and you love these characters. Um, or, or I should say at least understand these characters because you may not love some of these anti-hero characters, but you can understand them. And, um, and, the, and what do we all have that's different from somebody else? It's our own personal experiences. So I can't write your story. You can't write my story. Um, so that's what makes us special. So if, if we're going to be able to dredge up as writers, our whole goal is to dredge up all of that stuff and to convey it in a way that's going to connect us and for you to feel what I feel, you need to be able to tap into all of that. Well, what's the best story? It's the one that you have that you own. So, um, I do think that the, when I was running the, the access program for HBO, we always looked for writers who could access that really quickly. People who were willing and already there at a place where all of their personal stuff was just at the, at the surface, where you didn't have to, to go through a therapy session for them to unload all of their stuff, because that stuff is the stuff that makes a script really resonate. And you can tell when someone is really willing to, to go there. Otherwise, everything is very cute, plotty, you know, surfacy, but it's not really um, moving. So, uh, so I do think that there's an important piece of this, which is use the stuff that you have, which is, you know, all of you and put that on the page. And then you can place that, whatever that little ball of stuff is, in any situation you want. So it doesn't have to be that you're, you know, writing specifically about your life. It doesn't have to be an autobiography, but it should, that kernel of that, of that idea and the center of it should be transferable to a story no matter where it takes place. And it's the more truthful you are, the more authentic you are in your writing, the better your writing. I know for a fact, excuse me, I know for a fact when I write, if I'm not being truthful and I have to go back and then go another layer and go, okay, how do I really tap into this character? And I have to do the work because, you know, and I think people can, you can feel it. People can feel it when you are being really truthful and when you're not being truthful, when you're doing it for cutesy sake versus you're doing it because you're, as I call it, opening a vein at onto a page. Have you ever had to tell a writer that? Like, maybe not in those exact words, but I feel like you're holding something back or maybe we need to go another layer? You know, somebody just said that to me recently. They said, I think you can go deeper. And I went, oh, I was caught. And I went, yeah, I know. But it was hard to, it was a hard thing to do. And when I, and so this was a, this was a script, I actually just turned it in um, to my manager recently. And he was the one who gave me the note. And he said, uh, so you could, you could do it a little better. And, um, and the story was very much about me in college. So it's a, it's, it's a horror sci-fi. There's like some 
really cool stuff that happens in it. But the character at the center was me in college. And, um, and I, and he knew and I knew that I had not done the work. I had done most of the work. I hadn't done all of the work that I could have done. And I went back and I rewrote the entire script and even throughout the entire storyline, I just, and I went in and I went, okay, I was writing and I did a lot of, um, uh, a story, but I hadn't really done the B stories. I hadn't really fleshed out the other characters. I was quick to get to the finish line. And when I went back and I tore the whole thing apart and then put it back together again and then went back to the original story, but I had to do some of that work in order to figure out who everybody else was in this world. It was, I'm going to say a thousand times better. It, he was absolutely right. I needed to do the work and I hadn't wanted to do the work. And I thought, well, I could get by on a cute little slick idea, but I, and I thought, like I thought, I said, I thought I had done some of it, but I hadn't done all of it. So, um, so it does work. And yeah, you have to give those notes all the time. And I think that how you give that note though is important, is just as important as the note itself. And sometimes a good coaxing or a good question, you know, hey, what were you trying to get to here? Or what's the theme as you see it? And what's the big question that you're trying to answer? And, you know, how do we help you get there? Sometimes those can be a lot better than hey, this wasn't great or, you know, you can, if you pose it in the, you know, Jeopardy way of asking a question, <laughs> then sometimes the, uh, sometimes those answers come organically to the writer. Sure. What would Alex Trebek say? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but were you, do you think you were doing it in too much of a cutesy way? No, I think I had, I think I had a, I had an, a, I acknowledged to myself that like I said, I had done some of the work. I had done quite a bit of the work. What I hadn't done was the hardest part of the work, which is when you go a deep, a layer deeper. And the, I think the part of it that was the light bulb that went on for me was that I hadn't written her emotions. I had written what she was doing and why she was doing it. I had the stakes in there. I had everything else. I hadn't gone back and done the work of um, of tapping into what I was feeling at the time and why the story was important and what was the thing that was driving me to write it. Why beyond the idea was it important to me? It's a story that I had, I had actually written a draft of this in 2009. So it's something that I kept holding on to and I realized that there are themes in it that were really important to me that I keep coming back to in other work. and. And so I knew I had to do finally do the work and go, okay, this is really me. It's the setting was, was Vassar. Everything about it was, was in every single building in it was a sensory, you know, memory coming back to me. And the, the fear was, well, what if I exposed too much of myself? And so I had to let go of that fear and go, okay, let me expose how I was feeling and why I was doing what I was doing and what was that journey that I was on and why was that and so important. And that was the key, I think. And when you can do that in your work, when you can really pull back the layers on your, um, on your, your own journey and try to ask your questions of, well, why was that important? Well, why was that important? Well, what touched a nerve there? And what was the, 
why did you feel so alone at that moment? And um, and what was the the tension that you were feeling with those people at the time? Um, and really get underneath that. That's when things start to really pop. Have you ever tried to write under a pen name where you felt like you could really just let it all go and no one's going to judge you? <laughs> or you we, we don't need to know uh, the pen name. I don't Sorry, know. Yeah. I don't think okay. I've ever... I do know that I think years and years and years ago, I'd written a screenplay and I submitted it to someone to read under a different name just because I thought it was it was a little tricky situation. Um, and I didn't get any response. So I was like, okay, that's fine. And in retrospect, it was not, it was again, it was a, a very concepty idea. It was a very screwball comedy kind of thing, but I hadn't done any of the work. I wasn't, you know, I needed 30 years to bake before that kind of thing was was willing to come out in the right way. But no, I haven't thought about a pen name. I think this, for me though, again, I'm at an age now where I don't care. So, and even I've offered to let my kids read my stuff and it doesn't, you know, they're adults. So, you know, we watch HBO together. So what, they, what am I going to say that's not, you know, that's not already out there? I don't think that there's anything that I could expose that that isn't, you know, exposable, sure. you know, as a human being. I think we all go through a lot of those same things. I think the failure would be on my part if I didn't, right? Like, then what are you, what are you doing it for? But I mean, even barring some heinous crime, still people, <laughs> you know, there's 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 going to be judgment, unfortunately, and and being okay with that is a really interesting place to get to. Sure. And it's, I'm not even talking about you know doing something horrible, but just you know whatever it is, and and. Um, but who cares about the judgment? I mean, ultimately, I don't. You know, let me just say this. I had I had a big um, fight with myself when I wrote this book. I brought the book. <laughs> yeah. So I I had a big fight with myself when I wrote this book because you know it is it is sort of semi memoirish. It's very you know personal in a lot of ways, but it's also hopefully a, a manual to navigating some of the craziness that is Hollywood, right? And for me, the biggest challenge was not even writing the book. It was the moment where I realized that the book was going to go out, right? Now, all of a sudden, everything is exposed, you know? So I, of course, went through panic. And then the other part of the panic was I, I had to have a social media presence. And I was not good. I was the worst Facebook friend on the planet. I did not do Twitter at all. I did not do Instagram. I was never on LinkedIn. It was just uh, an annoyance, you know. And I, and my publisher said, you need to have a social media presence. And I went, oh, all I'd seen on social media was, was people bashing other people. I didn't see any support, love, you know, camaraderie. I see it now. I see it, uh, I'm on some of the screen, screenwriter and the writer, you know, chat rooms or whatever, and I don't even know what you call them, chat rooms, you, uh, the, the threads. And, uh, and people are incredibly supportive, which I just love. But um, I did not really want to put myself out for that kind of exposure because the vitriol can be damaging, right? 
But ultimately, I realized that I was getting in my way for no reason, no good reason, because there will always be a percentage of people, maybe 10% of people who right away when you post something, they will come back and they're usually the first ones who post that say something negative or they contradict you. They come up with the, you know, you say blue and they go, no, no, it's actually not blue. Um, and there's, there's always that. And I was afraid of that, terrified of that. And, and I just really had to get over myself because I thought, Something my, my grandmother used to say, which is, um, uh, and she just passed away maybe a year ago. She said, uh, ain't nobody looking at you. And that really struck, resonated with me because I thought, yeah, we always think that everybody's shining a light on us. They, we always think it's all about us. But really, they're the stars of their own movie. They are not looking at you. So I really had to get out of my way and go, okay, there may be some of that that comes back. And that's okay. But for the most part, if somebody finds value in this, that's worth it, right? It's worth it if one more person navigates a situation where they're coming to pitch or they're going to reach out to an executive or they're going to a panel and they don't know what to say and they want to you know, ask a question at the Q&A or they want to network at an event or whatever, they're getting notes from somebody. If that one person can find some value and can navigate it a little bit more and get through the finish line a little bit quicker, then that's what the whole point of the book was. And then the book has succeeded. So sometimes you just gotta get out of your own way and and realize that I don't know that it, it matters in the grand scheme of things. A hundred years from now, who's gonna care? Or they might care in a good way. They might care in a good way, yeah. You know, um, so at what point do you feel like then you were able to go, okay, the book's coming out and that's a good thing and not be terrified? Or, or maybe, I mean, it's scary. <laughs> the it's terror scary is to, real. To, yeah. I don't know that I, I think I, I think I got over the fear of all that when people started to say, oh, I've seen your posts and I really like them or I really enjoyed the, Whatever you've, you know, I, I think too, it might've been, I did this thing. I did the piece as piece for a variety. Um, Cynthia Littleton was so great about it. And I, I said, you know, I'd called her up and I said, Hey, I've been thinking about posting this piece about diversity and, uh, would you like to take a look at it? And she goes, yeah. And then she calls me back. She goes, I'd like to run this. And I was, uh, and the feedback that I got from people was, was wonderful. And I think with every little step where you gain a little bit more confidence, you go, okay, I did that. Maybe I can do this. And maybe I can post the fact that I'm writing a novel on my, my, on, a, on this blog. And maybe I can, you know, do something about the Oscars that just happened. And maybe I can just sort of venture out a little bit more. And when you don't fall off the cliff and you get up the next day and the sun, the sun is still shining and you realize that you're still breathing, it's not that bad. And you just have to keep going. I think that to, if you think about your whole career, I certainly think about this in my career, and you think about how it's really just a matter of you putting one step in front of the other, right? One foot in front of the other until you get someplace. And you don't think about it at the time, but then you look back and you go, oh, wow, I did that. And I did not know where I was going, but look at where I am today. I started a nonprofit back in 2000 with a friend of mine, Bruce Evans. And we did not realize that 22 years later, we would still have this nonprofit. 
and that it would be impacting people's lives like crazy. We just did one little thing at a time. It was, we took some people to dinner and then we took a couple more people to dinner and then we connected more people and then we did mentoring programs and, um, and invited, you know, major studio network heads to join this group. And, and then we sort of, now we're doing leadership programs. So it's, it's organic. It happened slowly, but it's just one little piece at a time. I think it's also like raising children. You know, I had one kid and then I had two more kids and you just keep factoring them in until you, you learn how to do it better. But I do think that there's a, uh, a progression that happens naturally and automatically. And you're never quite sure where it's going to end up. You can have an idea and then, you know, either those, that, that pathway opens up for you, or it doesn't open up for you and you find a new pathway. Just like writing, executive, you know, career, back to writing. How do you follow a character's journey through their emotion and not through plot points? Okay, well, a lot of that has to do with your, you know, obviously you're, when you're figuring out what you want to say. And I think it depends on your, you know, you're doing um, TV or film. You know, in a film, you obviously have a major dramatic question. They're going to answer that by the end. Either they're going to get what they want or they don't get what they want. And in television, you're obviously doing it over a longer stretch of time. And there may be mechanisms if you're doing streaming versus, you know, broadcast. Either you want that person to have to learn that lesson over and over and over again on the comedy side or on the drama side. It's going to be a week to week because you're going to keep doing the same thing, essentially, right? And then on the... Uh, on the streaming side, sometimes there is an endpoint, right? Look at Queen's Gambit. There's a there's a feature structure underneath that, and so, you know, she gets to the end of the of her want. So, um, but when you're figuring out what the character, you know, you need to figure out who your character is. For me, what I do uh, as a practice is I do a character aria, which is, and I think other people have different you know, ways of talking about this. I actually heard, um, you know, I think The Screenwriting Life has a podcast, Meg LaFauve and Lorian uh, McKenna do this whole thing about, um, uh, and they think they call it an aria, but they do it in song. You know, what is that your character singing with that want? For me, I always called it an, an aria from way back, which is just on, on, a, on a single page, I just do a monologue where the character is yelling at someone, the, the antagonist, about what they want and why they want it. And it helps me focus. And I think it's it was a practice that I always did for my for my fellows. It helped them focus on how that character moved in the world. What do they sound like? So do they have a dialect? Do they have a southern drawl? Whatever that is. Um, and then what is it that they want and why do they want it? And how do they plan to get it? And I think that when you are able to focus that character, you may or may not ever use that. I think always, usually at some point, usually in a movie, it comes, you know, at the low point. Somewhere there's a, a, a moment where they lay it all out there. You know, I just want this. And sometimes that want has changed, but there's always a, I just want this thing. Um, and obviously they need to know in the beginning, but that thing sometimes, this thing usually changes over time. But you want that character to be so clear in their goal that there's no mistaking that that's what the want is. And usually in, a, in like a procedural, it's I want to catch the bad guy. 
So I'm going to make then all of these steps. And quite honestly, quite uh, it, it does help if you go, I need to do X, Y, and Z in order to get there. That way we as an audience know, oh, that's what we're on the ride for. We know what's going to happen. I need to get the package from point A to point B. Then I go, I know what I'm looking at. So, but finding out that characters want and really understanding that characters want is, is key. And then emotion, the emotional part underneath it is, is the why, why do I want it? You know, I want the, 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 um, the promotion. I don't know that anybody cares about you wanting the promotion. I want the promotion because I'm going to win my wife back. Then I care if that character's thing that they want so much is motivated emotionally that woman is the only one who understands me or I screwed up and I need to get her back or, you know, that underpinning of the, of the emotion is going to drive and keep us on the road for the entire length of that episode series or whatever it is. So I do think that those are important, really key drivers for your, you know, otherwise there's, there's no story. It, you know, it's all about the story. Why is the emotional truth so important in the writing process? What my pro- my own personal emotional truth, or just any writer? Yeah, any writer, whether it's you critiquing another writer for yourself. Well, I think I I actually think we sort of talked a little bit about this already, which is you know the the more honest, the more authentic, the um, the writing, the more truthful it is, the more it resonates. It just bumps up like crazy. And you can tell when someone's willing to give that and when someone's hedging their bets. So I do think that that's, that's how we understand each other, is if you're giving as much of your emotional truth as you possibly can, right? Yeah. We've all read books where it's an autobiography and some seem a little rosier maybe or their intentions seem a little rosier than maybe what the situation turned out to be. Sure. We can always kind of feel like, okay, I feel like I'm not getting the real story or I'm getting oh, yeah. like a, a PR version right, of what right. happened. I read one recently. That's a pretty big one that is out right now. And I went, mm, I'm not buying it. Like I just thought it felt really manufactured. And, and it was unsettling because I thought, well, there's some real story there that I'm not knowing and they're not allowing me in. They're giving me the sanitized version. So you could tell. You could tell when a, I'm not saying if you, you could tell if a ghostwriter, but you can tell someone else's, when someone else's, when someone is not really being 100%. And then that's not really a very satisfying book, is it? Right. Unless it's a, it's, it's a show of someone who's maybe somewhat delusional. Not, not like crazy, <laughs> no, but really in, in, in terms of why they did something, their intentions. And sure. think, seeing themselves, I mean, everybody sees themselves as a hero. That's just how it is. So, but but sort of like the way they would convince themselves that they did the right thing and it really wasn't. So you're kind of seeing this character that's very broken. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think in, in, in many cases, yeah, if it's, let's say, a business leader or whatever, and they're writing this thing where they tried their hardest and it was really because they wanted for the greater good and you're seeing through that, then it, it is hard to right. stomach. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. No, give me the give me the real. Give me the 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 broken, messy part. That's the more interesting part. How often as an executive would you read a screenplay that would make you cry? Well, as you can tell, I'm a big crier. So, I um uh I I'm not going to say I 
read a ton of them that would make me cry. But remember, many times I was in the comedy department. So I spent a huge chunk of my career doing the comedy thing. And then, um, but I, someone asked on Twitter recently, they said, what's the, like the best script that you've read as a, from a newbie. And there was a script, a script that uh, a couple of writers, uh, a team of writers had written after a very fraught development uh, period where they had not been entirely truthful about their um, intentions. They were trying to do things that would sell as opposed to things that, that they loved. And at a certain point, I don't think they were going to mind that, if, that I tell this story. But at a certain point, I pulled them aside and it was towards the end of the program. And I said, okay, what's going on here? I go, because this isn't working. And they were trying to do something really sci-fi. And they go, well, we thought, you know, we could, you know, there are not that many writers who look like us in sci-fi. And we thought we could sort of, basically, they're trying to game the system, right? And, and I said, well, this, is, this is, feels like a mashup between Hunger Games and Game of Thrones and, you know, something else thrown in there. He said, so what is your favorite show? And they said, This Is Us. And I said, then you have to write your version of This Is Us. And I'm going to say a couple weeks later, they delivered a script that knocked my socks off. And I was sobbing at the end of page one. And by the end of page three, I was just a puddle. And a, a coworker walked by. I was, I was in the office super early. It was like seven in the morning. And a coworker walked by and... Uh, and stopped and said, are you okay? And I was like, no, it's a really good script. And I was wrecked. And it's still probably one of the best scripts I've read to this day. It's just, and these, the, the pair had just rolled out of college, had just rolled out of NYU. Dramatic, I think dramatic arts school, the, the drama program. And I th think that's why I say that there's, there's talent everywhere. You know, we... We ended up getting another, there was another team of the, the I think the season before, um, I want to say maybe 2015. Again, they had just come out of college. So age is not a factor. Obviously, I'm making a career and I'm in my 50s, late 50s. So age is not a factor when you think about the talent that's out there. And when you get people who are so willing to again be emotional and um and be truthful there's you can feel them on the page in this script then it just is undeniable so you know and then I, I will also say i also read scripts that i read a lot of scripts of things that have already been produced that i know have made me cry and i just want to see well how did they do it so my own process is i read a ton of scripts even now and I usually put them up on Scriptation, I think it is the app. And I go and I circle things and I let go, this is a really cool way of doing something or I love this turn of phrase and does this feel like it's something that I can kind of use or I love the formatting in this and this is how they made the action go faster and you know, this is how they use their dashes or their, you know, their introductions and, and I learn from other people and other writers so and hopefully implement some of that juicy goodness into my own scripts but uh but i would say i could probably count on one hand the number of scripts that have made me cry but that doesn't mean that i haven't been moved and i've been moved quite a bit by people's honesty and their willingness to go there
How does a screenwriter with no connections break into Hollywood? You got to get some connections. So yeah, um, it's hard. You can't do this on your own. There's there's no there's no formula for that. Hollywood is a company town, and it's a very very small town. I think in the book I even say it's like Mayberry, which I think might be a, an older reference. I don't know, but it's uh, everybody knows everybody, and we're all maybe two degrees of separation. So I feel like there's not anybody in this town that I can't get to within two phone calls or emails. Um, and I think that's, you know, when you've been here long enough, that's, you just know more people. And because people like to work with people they know, you know, um, they want to work with people who've been vouched for, somebody's, you know, a, a, a recommendation, some sort of, you know, someone who's connected to someone else because they want to make sure that you can deliver. So there's um, there's that whole factor that that just sort of makes, that's, let's just set the table with, with that right there. When you're trying to get into Hollywood, you got to use the people that you do know. And you can meet people everywhere. So there's a ton of festivals. A lot of people go to, um, to festivals or panels or whatever gatherings they can. And one connection will lead to many other connections. And I think the great thing about a lot of the festivals these days is that people are there because they want to help. They want to connect. I was at um, Austin Film Festival and at this, I think within a couple of weeks, I was also at Catalyst that's in Duluth. And the feeling is the same. So you go to South By, you go to any of these, these festivals and there's this feeling of, we're all artists here. We all are doing the same thing. We're all uh, hoping to pass along our knowledge. That's why the people show up, the, the senior people, the the seasoned writers and directors and, and cinematographers and everybody who's there making something. They're there to pass along that knowledge. There's, there's a wealth of opportunities to connect and make connections. So start there. You know, we're now in a in a place where now the the universe is connected by you know the internet and Zoom, thankfully, and you couldn't even do it from the comfort of your own home if you're not in Los Angeles. But you, it does take work, and it takes work for, even for me. I'm constantly reaching out to people, and I've known a lot of these people for you know I grew up with them you know since I got out of college and even before in high school. My first job was a hookup from a high school friend. And every single job after that has been a hookup from someone that I know. I did not get any of this on my own. Not a single position was a blind call. So that's how it works for most people. Even if you are not, I use the palchos a lot, but even if you're not a palcho, you're not sitting around the table as a kid learning from your father and your mother how to navigate the situation. Even if you don't have that, you're not connected and there's no nepotism that you can draw on you can do it. I did it. My parents were in the dental field. My mom was a dental hygienist when I was growing up. She then taught dental hygiene and then she went on to become a dean of a college. And my dad was obviously a, my stepdad was a, a dentist. So I, I was only connected through <laughs> the friend that I had who was working for Dolores Robinson at the time. That's all I had. And it worked. So, um, you have to ha you have to rely on those connections. They will get you your first and your last job. So then, in a sense, you would have to be out here to make those connections, or no? In today's world, you can make them social media. I think you could do both. I think I think it's 
at a certain point you do, if you really want to supersize your career, you sort of should be in Los Angeles. Now, again, that is a pre-pandemic mindset. Now it's post-pandemic, maybe we're getting there. So there may be a factor where we will come back to in-person. I prefer in-person um, because there's just, a, you vibe off of people very differently than you do over Zoom where you just have a, you know, I've got a glass in front of me, you've got a glass in front of you. And there's just this, this weird chasm between us of whatever the internet is, fiber, microfibers or whatever. So we're, we are in this situation where we are forced to create relationships that, that aren't real relationships. We're, we're forced to do that. But when you're sitting in front of somebody and you're having a meeting or you're doing breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and you are really connecting and it's not, you don't have a time clock on you. You know, you don't have your, your zoom's not going to run out in 30 minutes, but you will really have a chance to get to know someone and hear about their lives. And what do they, you know, what kind of, what do they like to eat on their spaghetti, whatever it is, there's a, a, something that happens when we are creating those relationships and those friendships. And then you have to nurture those and you have to keep them up. So how are you going to do it? You have to schedule another Zoom. So is it doable? Of course it's doable. Everything's doable. And there's no right and wrong answers at all. It all works. But it's a little harder. It's, it's um, people have to know you. And then people have to be able to connect you with the other people that they know. And it's easier to do that when you are in one place. And in the book, I say, look, you know, the the trick of it is, is that if you live somewhere outside of Los Angeles, and again, we're talking about in-person events, you're outside of Los Angeles and you come to LA two weeks out of the year. Well, then everybody who you are relying on to connect you with other people have to work their schedules around you. And they have to try to figure out how to fit everybody that they want to connect you with into that two week frame and it time frame. And, and that's, it's a, it's not fair to anybody on, on any side. Um, and it's, and usually those meetings get canceled. They, it's canceled all the time. A friend of mine used to, uh, Carrie McCool used to call it cancelicious. She used to say, Oh, your lunch is canceled. It's cancelicious. So yeah, you're going to have to come into a situation where you are available at the drop of a hat and you might find that there's a party or there's a screening or there's a gathering at the academy that you want to go to and it's happening tomorrow night and if you have to book a flight and you can't get in then you're not going to be at the party with the rest of us so some at some point you have to figure out a way to do it in the meantime, though, there's a lot of prep you can do. You can create a, a social media profile. You can make relationships that way. Um, you always have to be a value add to whoever you're reaching out to. Just don't ask them for, hey, can I, you know, can you read a screenplay of mine? Then the answer is always going to be no. But um, uh, but you have to figure out a way to, to create a, a relationship long distance. What if someone's like this hot young writer, let's say on the East Coast, and they have an IMDb Pro account and they've gone through the top 30 and then they've filtered out the next top 30. They're sending these queries out and they're just here for a short time. Is that really going to work though? Because in some ways it's disingenuous because you're just like, hey, I'm here. Let's network, i.e. help me out. Help yeah. me get to the next level. Sure. And people in LA that have been here a while or have grown up here as you have, they can smell that a mile away. <laughs> and it's off-putting because 
you're like, oh, they need me for something. Yeah. It's not because they want to hang out with me. Right. Well, those are, those are the really, that's, again, that's not nurturing a relationship. That's, that's being very transactional. It's I need something from you. And I, and again, you're talking about somebody who's not offering something except maybe finding the next big thing, but everybody thinks they're the next big thing. So, and we've heard that so many times and then we've been burned by it so many times. Like you read the script and you go, nah, it's not that great. So we, we are very cautious about how we're going to spend our time and what we're going to, um, you know, if you're from going to crack open your script and spend an hour reading your script, I want someone to have vouched for you. I want someone to have told me, hey, this is worth it. So I'm probably not going to take your word for it because you think you're brilliant and I might not think you're ready yet. Not that you aren't going to be brilliant eventually, but maybe you aren't brilliant enough for whatever opportunity I might have. So yeah, you gotta, you have to figure out um, a better way to do that. And I think a good gauge is then enter a competition, enter a program, get a little vouching for by somebody who we already have bought into their level of taste. So when you're anointed by Sundance, then we know that there's a bar, you know, um, you've just sort of leaped frog over a lot of other steps. So you can do it that way. So get noticed, get known where you are. Right. And on the flip side, and, and I realized I took a negative slant with that. And, and on a, a different slant, I saw a woman on screenwriting Twitter say, you know, I just want to say to all the screenwriters out there who haven't gotten work from screenwriting Twitter to not feel badly because so many people are promoting that, hey, I just landed this and I just, you know, right. and it's all looking so rosy. And she said a lot of people can then feel bad because they're not getting that. She's like, I've gotten two possible job offers and none of them happened. Right. And I just want people to know, don't think that it's you because it's, it's a small percentage. What sure. do you think about that? I, really I love that she that. did that. I mm -hmm. think that's that's terrific. Again, that's why I love screenwriting Twitter. I love those those threads because people are very um, very kind and very supportive, and we they all know how hard it is. And there are a lot of people who are on that who are very successful, who are saying, "Look, it's hard for me too." And careers take you know go ups and down, may have ups and downs, and not everything's rosy. And people do tend to filter all of the negativity because they don't want to seem like they're complaining or you know that they're they're not making it happen when so many other factors go into whether somebody sells something at that moment or don't or or doesn't sell it so yeah i do think i i would say to everybody take heart um if you read um stephen king's on writing it's you know he was like he'd gotten so many rejection letters i think you know there's so many people out there who have had that experience where it just feels like it's Sisyphus trying to roll that boulder up a hill and you aren't getting anywhere and and then eventually you do or you find another way to make your inroads or you find a different um, level not a level um, definition of success and again not everyone's going to write a Marvel movie nor should everyone want to write a Marvel movie but if that's your barometer for success and you are missing all the other opportunities out there then you have to figure out why are you a writer in the first place? What are you trying to do? What do you want to accomplish? But I do feel as though that's, that, that was, that's, I love that she is out there um, singing the truth because that's important for people to acknowledge. You know, it's not all roses. But the, 
the great part about writing is that it is in itself a reward. So regardless of whether or not I ever sell anything, again, as a writer, the writing itself for me, when I write something really good that I think is, is um, that I enjoy, that I want to go back to and read again, then I feel as though there's that, at least I have that. And then hopefully everything else, you know, you want to make money. You want to, you want to make a living. That would be really awesome. But yeah, you have to figure it out for yourself. Well, and then to on writing with Stephen King, he, there was another part to that book, which was he'd established himself, but now he was needing to, you know, live a certain lifestyle in order to churn out pages and, and changing that as well. So that's something that everyone just thinks, if I can just get to this part, mm -hmm. but what about sustaining that part? Sure. So that's something that, no, we don't want to hear that part because it, it's all going to be magical right. once we get there. <laughs> right. That don't worry about me. I'll yeah, be yeah. fine. Here, well, we but, see the, yeah. we see the challenge in front of us. We don't always see, and we don't always know what's going to be after that. You know, that's another little thing that you go, oh, I, I didn't realize once I stepped over the cliff, I didn't realize, oh, there's another whole mountain that I have to climb. How many people were on your executive team at UPN? Oh, well, we had a really small, lean, green, uh, um, what do you call it? Lean, lean and mean uh, group of people. I had a manager, I believe, or director level person and assistant. But I don't think it was much bigger than that. I think it was just the three of us. How did you decide which screenwriters would come in to pitch? Well, when you are um, an executive, a lot of things come through agencies. So we had our fair share of things that came through agents. But because I was a woman of color in a company that was very much, you know, our mission was diversity, um, even as, you know, as programmers, we... Um, we found a lot of people on our own. Not everybody was, you know, especially people of color were not necessarily represented at the same ratio, rate. I don't know what the word is. We weren't, we weren't um, getting the same kinds of agents. And also when agents were pitching us people to come, um, you know, to come in with ideas uh, or to get on staff, they would always pitch the brown people last. And I was very sensitive to that. So uh, a lot of times I had to go get them, I had to go find them. Like so, how? Well, there's so many ways that, you know, you can get recommendations from other people that you know. Um, you can scout them at, now these, day, these days you can scout them in competitions and programs and in festivals. So it's a lot easier now than it was then. But it was probably a lot of, and, and also I will say, I was always at the comedy clubs. And a lot of the things that I was doing at comedy were finding those those talented up-and-coming comics. I was probably at a comedy club every maybe four or five nights a week. Oh, sounds like fun work. But I also had a lot of friends <laughs> who were comics. And so we were constantly out at, you know, the Improv or the Laugh Factory or the comedy store. Um, uh, every now and again, we'd have to trundle all the way out to the Ice House. But for the most part, um, I was surrounded by a lot of comedy writers anyway in my group. I used to get together every single Saturday for 10 years. Uh, I was part of something called the breakfast, I think we call it the, breast, the breakfast group, but it was it was a Saturday breakfast. We had it at 4, four and 20. Um, 
over at Laurel and yes, Riverside. I've been, I've been there. Okay, so I lived on Riverside Drive. And so we, we had a, this group, and it was a group of, I was the only executive, it was the odd man out, but it was actors and writers for the most part. But we were all working in the industry. And it was a group of, of people that half of us came from my high school and then the other half came from um, one of my friends' college group, whatever. It was like this whole group of people. And I met a lot of people that way too. And there were a lot of introductions that were made. But yeah, you just, you, you have to be very creative. I also found people, you know, this is sort of going back to the Fox days, you know, we were forced to to come up with interesting ideas. So we were pitching out ideas because people weren't coming to us and saying, hey, I want to do a Fox show. We were the new kids on the block. And everybody wanted to go to ABC, NBC, and CBS. They did not want to come to Fox. They didn't even know what a Fox show was. And so we had to be very proactive about finding talent and new voices and new ideas and new writers. So I was always just on the hunt, always searching. And I would find people from magazines that they had, magazine articles they had written and um, and again, their stand-up and, you know, plays. I was always at the theater. So you can find people. You just have to know where to look. Were you saying to these agents, please send us more people of color? Sure. And, and they just weren't? Okay. You're getting into a sticky place. Okay. Um, first of all, let's take a look at the number of people of color who are at the agencies. This was the 80s. There were probably a handful. Um, there were not that many in general. Or no, I'll say this is this was the 90s, the top, top of the 90s, because I got to Fox in 92. So number one, they're not checking for the people of color. If you remember at the time, and again, I don't know the numbers now, but in broadcast, black shows, because there were no shows with Asian leads, except Margaret Cho once, right? Um, there, I don't think there were a lot of Lat, Latinx leads, right? We had Chico and the Man. We had a very short-lived trial and error. I don't know. There, there weren't. They weren't plentiful. So, with a lack of agents who were part of those communities, and then. Um, you know, when they are looking for, well, who's going to be the next big thing? And then you're looking at the, the networks who are already telling you and the advertisers are saying, well, you are going to get less money for a black show than you are for a white show. It's not the biggest moneymaker at your agency. You're going to try to hit the home run with the friends, right? You're not going to, you're, you're trying to get that. So I think there are a lot of different factors who are going into this into the mix at the time. So yeah, they, were, they weren't necessarily um, bringing on board a plethora of, of black showrunners. They weren't nurturing them. They weren't, I'm telling you, if I could tell you how, how many times I had got, they, at the time that it was like you'd get your big ass book of, of all the writers and all their resumes and they'd, they'd physically print them out. And you'd have to take them back and they would never pitch the, the black writers, they were always pitching everybody else. And even when people come in to pitch, it was always a white writer coming in to pitch, hey, this is a black show. And I was like, when I got to UPN and I was able to make those, make those calls myself, I said, that's not happening anymore. 
it's not where we're going to start. So, yeah, I think now we're, we're obviously in a different place. Thankfully, we've evolved. I think the age, there are probably many more agents, probably not as many as they should be, and more managers. So there's now a spotlight and there's a way for us to infiltrate the business in a way that we didn't have before. So at that time you said, okay, they're not going to do it the way we want it or there's not access to who we want, so we'll go and find them. We're, sure. We're going to look for them. And a lot of those times too, we plucked the number two off of a show that did have somebody, you know, uh, that did have a, 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 a black lead probably in it. You know who are coming up the ranks, and we would we would find okay. Well, let's 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 get that next person who's who's ready. How many pitch meetings would you schedule a day? We had them every hour on the hour, so more than likely we would do. So typical a typical network executives day is usually a breakfast. Sometimes now these days, obviously not so much, but. I usually would start my day with a breakfast, then I'd have a 10 a.m. because I was in the office by 10. Um, every now and again, like a Tuesday morning or a Monday morning, we'd have a staff meeting at some point during that week, probably Monday or Tuesday, where we'd go over weekend read. So we re go through all of this material that had come in, or it would be a meeting. So it would be a 10 a.m., 11 a.m., a noon. Then we'd go to lunch, come back, and we would do either at 2.30 or at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, Sometimes a six. Sometimes those six o'clocks would end up being, actually at UPN we had seven o'clock meetings as well. So we had, um, those were usually within the company, but it might've been a, a programming conversation with scheduling or with, you know, uh, you know, it'd be a budget conversation, whatever it was, it was, but we were stacked every single, every single hour you had something. And that's why I say when you got a chance to, you know, when somebody canceled, it was like, woo, because those every single lunch was was a was a meeting. That's another meeting, right? It's not just lunch. It's a meeting. So uh, when I when I had kids, I would go home. I'd get home by eight. And I usually had to lay down for at least a half hour before I could even be sane enough to see my kids who were about to go to sleep if they hadn't already. So it's a it's a lot. It's a lot. And then there are also sometimes you have dinners. So it's a constant churn of activity. And within all of that, you are then the last 10 minutes before the end of the last meeting or at the end of the last meeting, you have 10 minutes maybe and you can go through some of your emails and go through some of your phone calls and try to return calls and and try to reply or read the next script or look at somebody's credits who's coming in to pitch you. Um, so there's always something to do. There's always something to fill your time. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And then imagine you're managing then the projects that you have already bought. So let's just say I've already purchased. And I'm going to say at, at Fox, we purchased 65 scripts to 85 scripts a year. Um, at UPN, probably a little bit less maybe, but still probably in the, you know, we're, we're not talking a couple. We're talking you know, 50, 60 scripts. So we're managing all of that material and giving notes. So some of those, some of those are notes calls. They're not all pitches. So there's a lot. And then we have to obviously connect with one another to say, okay, what did everybody think? 
about this before we give notes. So there's a lot of stuff happening during the day when you're a network executive. And it doesn't end on your weekends. You're still doing it on the weekends. So it's a seven day a week job. Yeah, I had to, at, at UPN I had to make a decision that um, Sundays were for myself and my family, but that Saturdays I would work. So I took one day, this is even just after I got married, I needed to foster my relationship, right? So I did make sure that I at least had one day for reading material and doing notes or watching cuts and giving notes on cuts, whatever that, whatever I was doing. And, and sometimes you're, you're, you're writing up the document, right? So it's not just like I'm reading a script and verbally giving notes. I'm then writing a document or I'm reading a document that someone has written and adding my thoughts before we send it off. So there's, again, there's process. And then at least one day for relaxation. And was it really relaxation or you were always available by phone? No, I was not available by phone. I had to unplug. And I, that was, again, that was the uh, stipulation between when I worked at, at Fox for Tom Noonan, who at the time was a 24-hour, you know, seven-day-a-week kind of person. And I would get these crazy calls so early in the morning. I was not prepared. And I was like, and he had always writ, read everything way before I had. So I had to be really, really fast. And at the time at Fox, I was also the person who had to collect all of the the information, this is so old school, but all of the information about everything that everybody else was doing in town. So part of my job, besides going to comedy clubs and doing notes and all of this and reading scripts, was also to canvas the town and do up a report that was, well, Warner Brothers just bought these three scripts and these are the auspices and this is the log line and, you know, the status. And it was a multi-page document. So it was terrifying because I was a person who was like, I got to call so-and-so at whatever and wheedle the information out of them because they didn't always want to give it to you. Sometimes you call the agents, but you had this binder essentially of information. I will say packets of information about what everybody's doing, what overall deals they were having, they were creating, um, who was getting blind scripts, you know, whatever it was, I had to be the, the rooter outer of all things. So it was, um, but again, it helped me create a network of people. I, I suddenly had, you know, 15, 20 people who were my regular contacts that then exponentially, again, grows your network. And any writer that comes in is always represented? It's never a non-represented writer, like someone just cold pitching? Well, if you, well, okay. So, so things, things, are, things are different. If I'm finding somebody, let's just say I'm finding a playwright, they may or may not be rep represented. But the material's out there, right? So the playwright has probably produced the play. That's how I probably know of that playwright. So it's not like it's anything that there's an issue with me being able to bring that person in. So sometimes you have to go chase people who aren't represented. But for the most part, people are represented or they have legal representation or they come in from a valued source. When I was at, at HBO, I because I was in the diversity department, there was an understanding that if you were coming to me, we didn't need you to be represented. We didn't need you. We needed you to sign a release form, but we didn't need you to have all the bells and whistles because we were discovering that talent. And I think some, a lot of places don't necessarily operate that way. You know, I was lucky that I, they allowed me that trap door <laughs> where people could, could fall onto my desk. <laughs> 
How many pitches would you listen to before greenlighting a show? Well, the process at a broadcast network, it's not quite that, um, it's, it's not really done that way. Like you said, every, every year we would bring in a certain number of pitches and that was, was um, determined by the budget that I had. So let's just say, let's just say I, for sake of argument, I have a million dollars in my budget and I'm purchasing scripts from a number of different kinds of levels of writers. So some are basically getting scale or, or whatever it is, they're getting uh, a minimum amount of money because they're brand new, they've never done it before or we're getting some super high-end people who've already, you know, knocked it out of the park on it, another network and they're coming in to do another project for us. So I've got a certain budget. The budget will run out at a certain point, usually around October for, for the comedies. Um, and, or for comedies and dramas, it depends, again, on how much money you have in your, in your kitty. And... And then we would always reserve something because there's there was usually like a heavy hitter that came in like at the very last minute. There would be always something super unexpected that you go, oh, I really wish I had the money for that. So you reserve a little bit something in, in the in your pot for that. But when the money runs out, the money runs out. So again, sometimes it's 55 scripts, sometimes it's 85 scripts. And based on that, you then get all your first drafts in or you get all your all your scripts in by... Uh, I could say your final drafts in before the holidays. So just before Christmas break, you get all your scripts in. You've already done a draft or two, so you know what's kind of what's looking good and what's not looking good. And then when January comes around and you're back in business after the holidays, that's when you make your pickups and decide, okay, of all of these, I have enough to make maybe 10 pilots or 13 pilots or whatever the number of pilots are. And at, at, at a certain point, sometimes you might not want to do a full pilot. You might want to do a presentation. You might want to shoot a few scenes to see if it's something. But you don't necessarily need to shoot the whole thing. There are times when you must shoot the whole thing because it's the only way you're going to really know if you got something. So we would decide, oh, we're going to do three pilots and four presentations based on the money again. And then and then you'd make your pickups based on those things that, that panned out. And it's, you know, then you go, you go into pilot craziness and all of a sudden you're off to the races with everybody else and you're looking for directors and you're looking for um studio space and you're looking for your um your actors and you're competing against all the other networks that somebody might want to go to before they want to come to you and you're doing your best to scramble to get you know to get the very best um, package that you can the very best you know team of people and how are you choosing some of the staff writers? Well, that comes after you get the pilot done. So let's just say then the pilot gets shot, you know, edited. You see the rough cut. You they you go back and you give your notes. You polish it up. And by May, when the upfront fronts were coming up, you then have you know you know which ones you were you were put, putting on your schedule and which ones you're going to hold for mid season as mid season replacements. And then you go out and you announce it to the world and. Somewhere in that that April delivery of the pilot and the pickup to series is a couple of weeks where you pretty much know what's going to end up on the schedule and you've 
you sort of tip the hand to the people who are producing those things and you go, all right, it's looking really good. You should probably start to read some scripts and get some stuff or a, you're not, it's on the bubble or it's not going to work out. And then, yeah, those, that's the problem of the, of the showrunner to go assemble that team and start reading people. And because we've worked with a lot of writers, we will have an idea of kind of who we would like um, to have in that group. And if the showrunner's amenable and meets and likes those people, then great. And if they don't, they might have their own ideas. It's a little bit of a negotiation to decide, you know, who's going to get on staff. Now that I've been a writer in a writer's room, I think I even know even more how important it is to get the right group of people and how much the showrunner really needs to rely on particularly the people at the top who are going to execute that that goal even when they're not in the room. I knew about it before, but it's like you really see it in action when it's when you're sitting there, you know, in that writer's room. It's really important to have the right mix. That's interesting. So what does that mean when someone's not in the room and they can execute so they can then give notes over the phone or No, no, I just mean that when you're when you're running a show as a as a writing showrunner there's other things that you have to take care of so you are also when you're launching your show you're doing your press you're in the um you're in the edit bay doing post you are managing your talent you are putting out fires left and right you're talking to the network you're pitching another new stories to the network and the studio so there's a lot of other things that happen that's why the showrunner is so important and then you might have a head writer who is taking care of running the physical room while that while you are handling other things. You may also be that person who must dip back in. You might have a non-writing executive producer who might handle all of that. So when I was executive producing a show, it was a drama series. We handled a lot of the other things. We were in the writer. We were in the edit bay all the time. We were selecting the music. We were. Um, doing the spotting, we were doing the color correction, we were in the post, in the post, you know, world, but we were also dealing with, well, we had a cast, uh, not a cast, a costumer who was cycling out, we had to get a new costume designer, we had, you know, crew changes or other issues, we had to figure out, well, what does the poster look like? So there's other things, other decisions that have to be made that have to go along with the show, the physical writing of the show. So there's a lot of you know, kettles boiling. Sure. I know I'm mixing my metaphors like crazy. No, no, no. Now now I'm getting a better picture of it. Right. Okay. So you've got the writer's room. They're there 14 hours a day, I guess. Well, they come in at like, it's a 10 to six kind of job. Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe. Although there are are legendary shows where they just never went home. Like they went home for like a minute to shower and then came back. Hmm. But those are old stories. Sure, sure. So okay, so maybe eight to ten hours if we're lucky. Sure. Okay, so that's its own sort of moving part, and then you've got all these other decisions that you're making, whether it's the poster, press, um, color correction, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and managing the managing the machine. What makes a terrible pitch? Ooh, probably not enough preparation, not knowing your character or your world. Um, you know, there are staples to every pitch everybody needs to know why why you're the one to write the pitch uh, the the show you know um you need to know your character really well you need to know what how they operate within the world what the conflict is what is this what's the ensemble around them and if you can't articulate that 
it can be a mess. Um, but I don't think anybody ever wa walks into a pitch thinking it's going to be a terrible pitch. They don't want to make a terrible pitch. That's That happens by accident. But when you know a show and you're passionate about a show, showing that passion goes a long way. That can really remedy a lot of ills. Even if you aren't great at articulating them in the way that you think is the smoothest way to do it, I think sometimes just your enthusiasm for the material and knowing that material and knowing what you want to say can be, you know, make all the difference. I know it's a, it's it terrifies people. It's a terrifying thing to go in there and want to tell a story really well and not wanting to screw up. And because you don't want to screw up, you end up screwing up. But you have to remember that people have heard a lot of these things. They've heard a thousand of these pitches. You're not bringing in anything new. It's very rare that you're bringing in something that's so wholly different. But what you are bringing is yourself. And that, coupled with the idea, is why people want you to write it. And remember, they're not, <laughs> they're not creating a show for you to sit and tell the story on television, right? That's not the, you pitching is not the show. Um, the show is what, how you're gonna execute it on the page. So I think if you can release some of that anxiety and just go in and tell us and talk about why you love something and why you think it's a great idea, then the details don't matter. You know, you, especially if, you, if, you, if you're the person who comes in with a note card or you come in with your, your page and your page is shaking, acknowledge it and just go, I'm awful at this. There are plenty of people who are terrible pitchers who end up selling things. So if you could just hang a lantern on it and just go, look, I'm gonna botch this terribly, but guess what? I love this so much and I think you should love it so much then, you know, I think you could, I think you could squeak by. It sounds like then the terrible pitch isn't uh, nervousness, it's lack of enthusiasm. Well, you could be nervous, but again, if you're nervous, there are so many other ways to mitigate that. So bring a partner or bring your agent or bring somebody who's going to fill in the blanks and who's going to, you know, be your wingman. So there are ways to do that. Again, you can write it down. You can, you can have them. You can send them the deck in advance. These days, it's it's all on Zoom. Zoom has been the best thing in the world for people who are terrible pitchers because you can read your document and no one's going to know. So there are ways that you can get around it. I think, you know, barring a flop sweat, <laughs> I think I think anybody can can muscle through. And again, it's what you are on the page. So if you they love you on the page and they've already said that they've loved you because you're in that room, whether it's a Zoom room or it's an in-person, so you've already got over the hurdle, the biggest hurdle, and then you just have to convince them that you have enough insight into the character and you know the world really well and there's something to say, that there's a relevancy to what you're saying then you've got a lot of the big pieces. But when someone lacks enthusiasm, then it doesn't matter if they're smooth as is butter with their delivery, but it's there's just something, it's not convincing. Well, here's the thing. Who would want to work with somebody who's not enthusiastic about a job? Because you are then spending, as we said, 12 hours a day on set. 
for 22 episodes or eight episodes or however many, it's a lot of time. It's the bulk of your year, right? You're coming up with a pitch and then getting in the room to pitch takes a long time to do it. So if you're not interested in it, why do it? What's the point? So you have to be enthusiastic, otherwise do something else. If a pitch or screenplay is rejected, how does that writer build a relationship with the executives? <laughs> okay, when you say rejected though, what are you talking about? Are you talking about somebody that has already sold something and is rejected or before you even get to the place where you're meeting for a general? You know, you're having a general and it's, sorry, it's a pass. Okay, but if it's, again, if you're sitting in the room with an executive, you've already won. They are already on your, on t on your team, right? So it's up to you to then give them something that they, that they will like. Or maybe it's just not for them. And maybe it's just the wrong timing. So there have there've always been times when we're looking for A and you're bringing us B. So we really need a family comedy for this slot, but you're bringing us an action comedy and we don't have space for it, nor can we afford it, whatever it is, it might not be the right time. So your past might have nothing to do with you as a human being or your writing, your skill, or your, or you know, whether I like you, it might be a factor of many other things that you have no idea. The problem is, is that we always take it personally. We think it's us. You've said no, and I take it personally, right? So you have to get past that because again, as we said before, executives are running a mile a minute. They are managing a lot of things. There's a lot of balls in the air and that one thing might not be right. So keep moving. Let's keep moving because I've already invited you into my space. I've already said, I like your writing. You, you, now it's on you to say, okay, that didn't work. Let me, here's what I would do if I was in that position. You've just passed to me. You go, I'm sorry, it's not working. I go, you know what? What are you looking for? Now that's a whole new conversation. Or, oh yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. Thank you so much for reading it. That's so great. Um, let me float another thing by you. It's something I'm working on. What do you think about this? And then you've hooked somebody with another, you don't even have to have the idea. You could say, you know what, I'm thinking about doing something about mother-daughter relationships or something about, you know, dystopian worlds and, you know, how somebody navigates that. Then again, you've then opened up another line of conversation where then that executive can say, oh, and you get something more, come back and pitch it to me. That's a conversation. Now, how do you land the plane in that meeting? At the end of the meeting, hopefully you say, you know what, my agent put us in touch. I would really love to have a direct line to you. Is that okay? Can I, can I share my card with you or can I give my information directly to your assistant or can I have your number or is it okay if I reach out in a couple of weeks? You know, there are ways to have a conversation and particularly if you've connected over something. So let's just say you guys both have kids who are in AYSO. Hey, you know what? I wonder, are you going to be at the turkey tournament? I would love to see you. Let's grab coffee there. Whatever it is, there are threads everywhere that you can pull. That's why being in a room, a real room with somebody gives you all of the other information about that person. What are the posters they have on the wall? What shows did they do? What's the coffee table book that they have? Everybody's got a coffee table book. Um, what's the pictures that are on their, on their desk? There's something that you can then key into 
and ask that person about themselves in that way. And then connect it back so that you start a relationship just as though you would do with anybody. So there's there are ways to continue the conversation and to and even if you don't hear back from them, it doesn't mean that they haven't received the information. There's many times that I would get an email and I was running so fast that I didn't think to respond, but I still saw the email. I still saw that person's name. That person still was on my mind. So don't think that a no answer is no answer. So that's the error is thinking that it's a rejection when really they've invited you there, they've given you whatever amount of time. So right. that's actually not a rejection. No. And then you're it's sort of the door is slightly open. And, and then it's up to you to make the next move and to show that you've made some progress. So for and you and we are we're so good as human beings of filling in the blanks. We're like, oh, they hated me. And then you go through a, down a rabbit hole where you just you just wonder all the things that you did wrong and I must have crossed my legs in the wrong place and I know when I took the sip I choked on my water and oh they just hate me and you go down this place that has absolutely no bearing on reality because again they are the star of their own movie and they're thinking about something else sure. they just said oh my god I had a really great meeting and I wonder what I'm gonna get back you know and then it's up to you you have to deliver. And remember too, again, we are the, a town of show me something. Like show me you're moving forward. If you're sitting in stasis, if you're locked in a block of ice and you are not moving forward, I don't really have time for you. I want the person who's actually out there doing something. So as soon as we show a little, as a, as a writer, as soon as you show a little momentum on your own, we will then re-engage. So you get into a program, oh, I'm re-engaging with you or, you know, you, I don't know, you win a competition or someone else has brought your name up and then I'm re-engaging. So, and you don't know what's happening under the surface. So there's a whole network of things that happen constantly that we are never privy to because no one's saying, I did this for you. But there are also many times where someone would come in to meet, meet with me and have a great meeting. I didn't have anything for them at the time, but it didn't mean that I didn't push that material to the current department or push that material to a friend of mine at a different network or mention that name somewhere or give a recommendation to that for that writer to a program. So there's a whole other network of things that are churning below the surface that are happening that are really working in your favor. And eventually all those things are gonna line up somewhere. Eventually there's going to be a critical mass and those people are going to hear your name a couple of times and they're going to go, oh my God, I've heard that person's so great. And that's when you, your little bubble pops to the, the top. That's when your little Horton Hears a Who yop comes out, right? And all of a sudden, we are here, we are here, we are here. I think you've said 20% of all writers are really good and 10% are great. That's what I saw when I was doing the HBO Access program. So we would get in our, every year we had about 3,500 submissions to our writers program. And when we did the math, we found that 20% of those writers were all good. They were good. 80% of them were probably just not ready, right? But 20% were good. And any of those 20% could or should be working in the business. And they came from everywhere. 
all demographics. 10% were really good. 10% are all people who were very worthy of, of being in the program. So it's not that the talent's not there, the talent's there. And I wonder, and I've, I've actually had conversations with, with people before about this. You just wonder if, again, the access is the barrier to entry. If, yeah, there's, there's going to be some part of that, some, some piece of that that's going to be a fraction of those people won't work in, in a writer's room. They're probably feature writers or their interest is someplace different or they want to do animation and we didn't do animation at the time or they wanted to do children's and we didn't do children's. So there may be other factors that count them out or they're emotionally not ready to take that next step, which is a very valid thing. And I applaud anybody who understands that about themselves. But of, those, of that 10%, those people, again, come from everywhere. They come in all ages and all um, genders. And you just wonder how many of those people are out there in the world who just don't have the entry point. They don't have the access. And because they don't have that access, they, they give up. You know, how many people, how many stories are we leaving on the sidelines that aren't getting through because they're not getting the encouragement? Which is why when we were doing our program, when we even when we did our semifinal cut, we, we put blasted that information out there because all of those semifinalists had jumped over so many hurdles and we knew that they were, you know, great voices, valued, you know, um, could be potentially, you know, working in this, in this industry and they all needed to be recognized. They all needed their, they all needed their little day in the sun because what happens is when, when HBO then puts that message out there, all the agents come looking for them. They see their names. They're like, they, we look them up on online and reach out directly. And all those people get then a little bit of lift. But yeah, there's a lot of talent out there. And you just wonder how many stories haven't been told that should be told. When you say emotionally ready, what does that mean? When I say emotionally ready, I mean that sometimes you can get to a place where you have the path, the door is open to you. But you aren't necessarily ready for all that it entails. Being a working writer in this industry is not easy. Once you've gotten the gig, it's you're still putting in hours and you're still writing on the side because you need another piece of material and you still have to work with other people in a writer's room, right, on the TV side. Or you still have to navigate what it means to be a writer. And you and sometimes that the not knowing where your next meal is coming from is not easy to to understand or to to stomach. And then there are other things. So whether you are, you know this about yourself or you don't, you, in order to sit in a writer's room and to contribute without over-contributing, um, sometimes we don't all have the same skill set emotionally. We don't have the right tools emotionally to take all of that on. It is a, it is a thing. So that's when I say emotionally you have to be ready for it because once you are stepping onto that train as a working writer, it can be a lot. There have been times where people come out of a program and they go, you know what, I'm not going to be, 
I realized in the program that I don't love this process. And I would rather go direct or I would rather go write novels or I'm actually not fitting. I don't see myself fitting into this world in this way. Or I'm dealing with my own stuff and it's hard to deal with and I need to take a break or I need to take a step back and that's okay. Not everybody gets to the, the starting line at the same time. And I do think that what we ask of writers is emotional work. And if you're not ready to expose that, you got to do it at your own pace because you can damage your soul if you are not ready. So you have to figure out a way to be okay with it. And remember, you're getting criticism, constant criticism, whether people are saying it in a nice way or not and how you internalize that. And if you're okay with that, then you're good to go. And if you internalize that and you cannot, you cannot make sense of it and you need to do some emotional work, then sit it out for a minute until you're ready. So. Do you think that's a rare individual who realizes, wow, this big door is open for me and I'm actually not ready and I'm going to turn it no, down? No, I don't think it's unusual because I've, I've encountered quite a few people who, who get that, who know, who understand that. And, and I think that uh, when you've got to that place where you are, people are starting to set those meetings, it clicks in pretty quickly. Your fight or flight goes, oh, the, the sensors go off pretty fast. Like, I don't think I can do this. This is making me too uncomfortable. So I do think that there's a little bit of a pressure point that just goes haywire. And that's good. Then, then you got to figure out another way. And do you think because so many of these writers, they hone their craft outside of school on their own, whether at the library, coffee shop, in their room, and now it's a totally new ballgame with input and agendas and personalities, and they weren't prepared for that? Well, I think also remember that uh, beyond all that, and that might be that might be true, sometimes when you get into a writer's room and you are dealing with a lot of criticism, and you, let's just say you have a funky writer's room, which a lot of people, we saw in the last couple of years, a lot of people had to go through. There's misogyny, there's racism, you know, there's, uh, there's so many other things that are coming at people that have nothing to do with the work. Sure. Teacher's pet. <laughs> you got to figure out a way to hold on. And I had a conversation with a with a writer, um, Kathleen McGee Anderson. I had a had a breakfast um, at the Beverly Hills. Was it Beverly Hills Deli? What's the one that's at the top of Van Nuys? Whatever that deli was, Beverly Glen Deli. Years ago, and this was back when she had just wrapped Lincoln Heights, and she said, "I'm really concerned that that we are losing a lot of our black female writers. That they just can't. That it's so hard to be in a room and you're the only one." And so we started a, a group, and we got. And we did it for a couple of years where we got, a, I was an NBC at the time, we got a lot of senior level, we had I think three or four senior level writers brought a mid-level and a junior writer. And it was to foster more mentoring and to give them some place where they could, they could a soft place to land essentially, a, a, a touch point. Because we needed people to wrap their arms around the people who are coming up and go, oh yeah, they're going to call you the diversity hire. Whether you were or not, they're going to try to shame you into that. And they're going to want to touch your hair and they're going to want to throw racial epithets at you and they're going to want to 
you know, push your buttons and they're going to try to undermine you. And that was just very, very common. Probably still is. And navigating that takes a lot of emotional fortitude. Now, I've been the diversity gal, so I've had a lot of stuff slung at me. I don't, I've got tougher skin than a lot of people. So I think I could probably weather it, but it wasn't easy getting there. There was a lot of times that I would go home and just be emotional wreck because nobody wanted to see that coming. Nobody wanted to see the diversity person coming because I was always there to tell somebody that they were racist and they probably were, but then I wasn't the, you know, I wasn't very well liked in that role. Personally, I could be, have friendships with them, but, but they're not looking for that, right? They're not looking for that criticism. So it gave me a tougher skin than maybe some other people. I had a network executive. I had to be, had a tough skin. So, um, but not everybody starts there. You develop that as you go along. You create it, you know? Can you develop it without becoming bitter? Oh, sure. I think you can. I think, I think it's hard. I think there are times when you're dealing with it, but but that's a bigger that's a bigger question because you know it it goes way beyond hollywood we're living in a time when we are seeing the rise of it but we never really left it we you know my parents went through the 60s and and so there's always been strife there's always been struggle before that we've 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 had struggle here for you know 400 plus years that's not going to go away and then mix in every other culture that's tried to assimilate here and try to get a foothold. So there's going to be a sense, I mean, what, what does James Baldwin say to be black man, black, to be black in America is essentially to be in a rage all the time. There's like, I'm paraphrasing terribly, but to be in a, a rage all the time. And that's, of course, that's part of it. It's an undercurrent because we are looking for fairness in a place that fairness doesn't exist, nor does anybody want there to be fairness. You know, the people who should be, should be fair are not fair, right? So we're constantly struggling. We're constantly looking for a place to exist peacefully and do the best at work that we can against terrible, terrible odds. But that's part of it. That's part of where we are. I, I, uh, I've, I've, I had a conversation, the very first conversation with, with my boss at NBC, a woman, amazing woman named Paula Madison, and she sat me down for lunch and she said. Almost the very first thing she said at this lunch, it's so seared into my brain, was she said, make no mistake, this is a civil rights job. This is civil rights. That's what we're doing in diversity, right? And I think of my role as a diversity executive and, and I think in, in my place in that world, it's funny because a, a, a young man just asked me, about this recently in the last couple of weeks. And I said, we are part of a chain. We are just one link in a chain. And the chain stretches out way far behind us and way in front of us. And we're not gonna fix this in our lifetime. It won't be over, but we are doing our part because we cannot allow the chain to break. We have to keep going, right? So if you think about all the people who came before us, there's been Terrible, terrible atrocities. And I know that we're going, we're like going off script here, right? In, in the, our conversation. But terrible, terrible things have happened. And we keep standing on the shoulders of those who come before us. So I'm standing on the shoulders of 
of my boss and her predecessors and, and a long legacy of people and there will be people who stand on my shoulders as well. So yeah, there's going to be some bitterness because it's not fixed yet. But that there's also a lot of other things that come into my daily existence. I'm not all bitter. That's not my, I don't wake up feeling bitter. I wake up and I do the job that I'm tasked to do. I create material. Hopefully I, co I come to the material and try to create something that then again you are touched by, that then bridges that gap between us just a little bit more. And that's the job. That's my job right now. So you can't, you can't live on bitterness. You have to get up and do your job every day. You got to go make something happen. So there's a, there's a time and a place to, to be angry and to fight back, but then there's another time and a place to say, okay, I'm just going to focus on the task at hand and I'm not going to. But they might be one and the same. They might be the one and the same. So every single script that I write has a black lead black female lead so far. Um, <laughs> I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine who was like, she was reading my scripts. She's really, really great. Um, uh, uh, um, I don't know. She, she, she helps a lot of people with their material. And, and I hadn't written in the, my description that the lead was black. And she says, well, you have to write that in. She said, otherwise we assume it's white. And I said, why would you assume that? Why would you assume that? It's coming from me. And a lot of other writers that I know who are of color are like, why would you assume that? Um, but that assumption is really like it just gets it gets to me. And I'm like, don't ever assume that about me. You have to assume the opposite. And that if I tell you that the character is white, then <laughs> that character is white. But again, I feel like there's like all of this stuff that goes into um, into how. I'm presenting my material. My material is, by its very nature, advancing the cause. It's putting another perspective out there. It's showing you that this other character, this character can be whoever she is and navigate the world. So that's part of it. It's all part of it. And by the way, the first script that I wrote that got into Sundance was all about bitterness. She, the character was like a Joy Reid kind of character. And she was on a tear the whole time. And I likened it to being how I sound in my head all the time. That's not every character I have. Not every character is like that. But there's an element of just by that character existing in the world, just by people reading that script, just by who, sh who I'm putting out there, that's also advancing the cause. Why do screenwriters feel like executives ruin their screenplays or ideas? <laughs> well... That's a good question. However, I am doing listening to um, that new book that just came out about HBO, and it's an interesting thing because a lot of the testimonies from the writers are very positive about how they're being supported. So I do think that you know, anytime you get a a note, it's hard. You have to internalize you have to assimilate that into your psyche in some way and and notes are not you know everybody wants their thing to be great <laughs> right out of the box and it almost never is it always takes work so I think no matter if you're getting it from your writers group or you're getting it from an executive you're gonna 
you're going to push back on it because you obviously turned in the thing that you thought was ready. And then to get the, no, 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 it's not ready. There's something that needs to be done. That's like, it's a little, you know, it's a little hard to, to stomach. But I do think there's a, a whole line of rhetoric out there about um, bad executives and and a lot of the bad executives are demanding. They demand your notes to be taken, their notes to be taken. I think the better executives try to again help you find your path, your own path. That's why I think you know if you're if you're even even if you're not an executive and you're giving notes, giving a note in a form of a question will really help ease the pain. And also, you should also you know. Be cognizant of the fact that maybe somebody doesn't want to take the note. If they've taken the spirit of the note as opposed to the exact note and you get the point across, then, you know, it should be all good. But I do think that there's there's been a history of people who, who give notes that seem to unravel things as opposed to helping them. And, and if they don't have a fix for it, that's even worse. You know, even if you say, hey, it's the, this is the bad version then at least it's a little something. So there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. But I don't think anybody willingly goes out of their way to give terrible notes. There, are, there may be people who are just not equipped. They don't know enough. They haven't heard enough pitches or they haven't been on the pitching side and know how hard it is. So there are those people who probably shouldn't be giving notes. But hopefully if you're in a network and you're... And you're um, you're skilled enough to be sitting in that room, you should be giving fairly good notes. What does the know, spirit of the note mean? Sorry, I didn't know. You mean the note under the, under the note? Yeah, what is the spirit? You said the spirit of the note? Oh, the spirit of the note? Sure. So, you know, let's just say you, uh, you have read my script and you give me a very, very particular note about a particular line. Well, it might not be, the line might not be the problem. But what you're tapping into is there's something not working about that scene or that moment. Maybe I haven't earned that moment yet. And your note may not be the right identifier of that problem. But if I take a step back and go, well, wait, what, what, maybe, what, is, what is she trying to tell me? Maybe I can fix it a different way. Maybe it needs to be a different scene. Maybe everything's out of place. Remember how I said in the beginning, I took a script, I completely unraveled it, and then I put it back together again. And it worked so much better. Well, the note was just go deeper. He didn't give me a do it this way or this particular way, but he could have. And if he'd done that, and really the note was just go deeper, then I would have had to have looked under that. I would have had to look under, well, this why is this not working for him? And take the spirit of the note, which was deeper. Earn those moments. Give me more character. Follow the emotion. And so sometimes people don't know how to say that and they give a very specific, here's a line problem or I don't love this scene or it's, I'm getting bored or whatever. But they don't understand that they're not getting bored because the story is boring. They're getting bored because they're not emotionally driven by the story. You have to understand what's, well, let me, let me figure out what they're tr really trying to say, why this really isn't working for them. So the spirit is just telling you there's just something off or, yeah. or go, you know, they're not giving yeah, you the look exact. look over here. Yeah. I see. Okay. That makes sense. 
How many emails does an executive get every day? Uh, I averaged about 200 emails a day when I was at, at HBO. I'm going to say easily 200. And some of that is incoming stuff, agents, managers. Some of that is catching up with other executives that I know. Some of that was internal. Hey, we've got a meeting, you know, or hear notes on a script or whatever. So it's a tonnage of things that come at you constantly that you have to prioritize and get to the things that are that matter. You might have a meeting coming up you need to address. You might have just done something you need to do an action item. So you just never know. And every day is different. Every day is just slightly different where there's a new fire to be put out. Why do screenwriters think executives are the enemy? Well, I think just that goes back to your notes question, which is, you know, the, the, the executive is the person who delivers the, the notes, number one. They deliver the passes, number two. They're the people who say no. And I think a lot of executives have gotten the rap for being risk averse and not taking chances. And um, sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's, it's a factor that's way out of our control. So, you know, but we are always the ones who deliver that news. So it's a, uh, it's a lot of different things. And I think the, the whole process of, of Hollywood is so random and arbitrary. And I was just thinking about how, you know, we just saw Coda win best picture and in the speech, um, the director talked about how hard it was to get the film made. And you just go, in the normal world, you can't do that movie as a big studio movie. They don't do those anymore. You have to go the indie route. So imagine all the things she had to do in order to make that thing go, or she and the producers and the writer and all of those things where people were constantly saying no. And all the people who said no right now are kicking themselves because it was a yes movie and it desperately needed to be made and it touched so many people and it changed so many things. And yet all those people said no. It only took one person to say yes. Thankfully, it's out there in the world. But again, think about how many other places and other movies that, that don't get made because someone doesn't think that it's right for them or the right time or they don't have the budget, whatever it is, whatever the reasons that they're not going to push the button and how many things have to really be squeaked by. There's a whole thing about the Godfather. Have you seen the, there's like a whole thing about the Godfather out now about how the Godfather was made. There's like a lot of threads on Twitter, but then there's this movie that's coming out about it. And you think about all of the ways that that could have gone south and it probably couldn't have, it wouldn't have made it. And yet it's like the most celebrated movie of, of all time. And you go, if it's just by the, it's just by some sort of magic that it, it became something. And I think they even said at, the, at one point that the book hadn't even been finished at the time that they, they were starting this movie thing. So it's just, it's kind of crazy. And you think about if you go on that thing, uh, there's like a Netflix show about, you know, I don't know, the history of how things got made. And I think they do. They do Dirty Dancing and they do um, Die Hard and they all have the same story, which is there is no way in the world this movie should have gotten made. It should have, it should have crashed and burned a million different times and those are the things that make it. 
So somebody had to champion it. Somebody had to say yes. Um, but a lot of people said no. So I think executives in general, like it's just a miracle of, of modern science that anything actually gets, gets made and turns out good because there's just a thousand ways that it could, you know, end up of heaven's gate, I guess, right? So we have this quote here, and this is from a foreword in your book, and this is by Jay Roach. And I don't know if you want to read part of it, and we've only fit a portion of it on the board here. We have the rest of it here. Sure. Most development execs, producers, and even assistants you encounter along the way are solid story crafters and could directly or indirectly become your collaborators and co-creators if you would. Dot, dot, dot. Just engage with them enthusiastically as teammates rather than defensively as critics and saboteurs. Where does your mind go when you hear that quote? Well, it, what, what immediately pops to mind is how many stories I know of people who found a property or found a script or found a writer and latched on and like a dog with a bone force that thing into existence, right? So, you know, I could think of, you think about Gina Balian with Game of Thrones or, um, I don't know, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the things that I've done where you find somebody and you just go, I'm so excited about this writer, you know, let's figure it out. Um, there's a lot of stories I think that you can, you can pull out of it HBO alone. Like I said, I'm listening to this book right now and it's just like, you know, David Levine in True Detective. Like there's Franny Orsi in, um, and how she really took, I don't know, she she took uh, My Brilliant Friend and just, it was her baby from start to finish. Now, that wasn't on anybody's radar. So what a, what a miracle that, that she was able to create something along with the team that she'd assembled and the writer and, and all of that into something that's so beautiful. So you have to remember that for every failed project, there's probably another you know, equally passionate executive who is putting together something else. And sometimes, sometimes that thing, that first thing isn't the thing. Sometimes it's the second thing. Sometimes it's the third thing. Sometimes you just have to keep going until you find the right collaborator or you find that right idea and it's the right time. You know, there's so many, again, so many pieces of why something works at a particular time and why something might just miss the mark. But um, we are all part of the same ecosystem. The executive is the person who, who essentially takes that piece of work, that writer, nurtures that writer, hopefully in the right way, and then gives that, that project the 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 place to flourish and to and to grow and I think that no one gets into being an executive with terrible intentions we don't it's a lot of work so we don't go into it thinking oh I'm gonna go smash people's dreams and ruin their careers you go in thinking you can help you go in thinking oh I love this writer so much I love this idea so much let me see how I can help it navigate through the gauntlet of everything that it needs to in order to get to the finish line. And again, I think that the when it when things really hit, they're usually surprised. 
You know, I think sometimes you can see things coming. I think when we all saw the pilot of ER, we knew it was groundbreaking or CSI, the first one was groundbreaking or, you know, there's some pieces that just pop out, you know, Breaking Bad. They're just things that, that just sort of automatically blow your, you know, your hair back. But um, sometimes things like Seinfeld that take time to nurture and then become huge and hit and hit really well. And you just don't know. You just have to believe and love in the, the process and the, the, the creators. And, and you have to love story. We just, we get into it because we love story. We, we are the same people that, you know, look, I'm the perfect example. I'm both writer and executive and had the ability to, to, do, to do both. And now I'm able to do both. But I was the same person who watched the 3.30 ABC movie, you know, every single day and watched Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and Annette and Frankie. And I wanted to be involved in that storytelling. And we all read a ton of books and we all do our homework. And so our intentions are always good. We don't always execute them well. And we sometimes do have to grow up. So... I think back on the the notes that I gave when I was young, they would be so different today. And I desperately feel like I want to apologize to every writer I gave notes to when I was too young to know how it really, really works. So sometimes we are not quite as skilled as we want to be. And we need to do growing up just like a writer needs to evolve, just like the whole process needs to evolve. So, um, But I think that he's absolutely right in that um, we are all part of the same big idea, which is we all want to see stories created, and some of us just do it on different sides of the of the of the process. But we are all collaborators. Sure, but then when someone looks at it in a defensive light, is it because you know you had said earlier there's so much going on behind the scenes that we don't always know with the network and and whether it's advertisers or, or notes that the fans are giving back, different things. And so is the writer privy to all of that? Not always. I think there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of meetings that happen. And there's, then there's sometimes there's things that that you hold back or you don't want it to. I mean, there's plenty of stories about. I have tons of stories about projects that you'd be shocked about all the, the steps and the things and how many times it might have fallen apart is that important for the creator to know? Absolutely not. Would it hurt that person's feelings? Absolutely. If they knew exactly what was happening in those rooms, it would be devastating. So sometimes that not knowing is not a bad thing. Sometimes that's why people feel like sometimes executives are too close to the chest. And because things are, they change at the snap of a finger. So let's just say you've, we've got a project, it looks like it's going forward, but I can't necessarily tell you for, for sure it's going forward because I don't know. They might change, they might change the whole direction the minute before I, you know, if I pull the trigger too fast and then they decided not to do something, then then you've then I've then I've blown that conversation. You've already gotten your hopes up. So there's a reason sometimes why they feel really cagey, because they don't know. Or they haven't been given the authorization to pull the trigger. Um, and a perfect example of that is, I can't say it's perfect, but 
So um, Yunetta Boone, who passed away, had, had done a show, uh, a pilot called One on One for us. And, and yet you, we didn't see it on air until a year after. So she, she was waiting for the pickup the year before. She was at the party. She was waiting for that note for the, for, we were in New York and she was waiting for the, the notice that she was going to be on stage that next day. I'm pretty sure that that's how it went. And we ended up at the last minute not picking that show up. So that was devastating enough. But imagine if we had already said, you're on stage, and then we told her two seconds before she wasn't going to be on stage. Now, the good news is we loved it so much, we picked it up the next year, and the, and the show was off the races, and it was an amazing show. But sometimes we don't have all the information. And then that comes across as cagey, deceitful. They're not, you know, sharing. Why are they doing this? You know, they just don't know. So it's, it's a, such a terrible little swirl of, you know, silence that sometimes can permeate and that can feel um, that, the, that, the, that the world is against you. It feels like the execs are against you. But then what you don't see is those same execs fighting for a project, you know, fighting for the life of something. I had to fight to get, I wasn't allowed to pick up Malcolm in the Middle at UPN but I fought to get it released in a time when there was a strict policy that said we do not release projects so they can go on to other networks. And I said, we need to, this needs to exist somewhere. Now, you don't see that in books. You don't see that in, I think I might have written, put it in my book, but there, you, don't, you don't hear those stories about how people do champion and try to nurture and try to foster and try to help. Why would there why would there be execs in the room fighting against it? So then why is one team want it and one team doesn't? Well things you know, things like scheduling come into it. So let's just say at a network you've got you've got a huge board. When we were doing our programming for um, for UPN or even for Fox, they have these gigantic boards and on these boards there's there's strips. So on one side it's like the the time slot and then the network or either way time slot the network and then uh each little strip it's a magnetized strip has the name of the show that the pilot that was just produced and so what we're doing is we're hedging our bets and we're trying to think well if cbs has all procedurals and we're trying to counter program with all comedies what's the best comedy that goes up against the cbs procedural the drama family drama on nbc the ABC's got, you know, a, a comedies, but they're buddy comedies. Let's go with a family comedy or let's go with a drama. So we are trying to figure out our schedule based on what other people are doing. So at the time that we're doing this, this is, again, right up right before Upfronts. So people haven't announced their schedules. When they get announced is when everybody knows specifically when things are happening. So we are trying to counter program and figure out, well, what's our best slate that's going to do well against the others because we don't want as a, as a UPN or a, or a Fox or even if you're thinking you know these days with with some of the other um, networks they don't want the same show to compete against the same show right you don't want a black female comedy up against another black female comedy you're going to cannibalize your audience so we're trying to find the, the spaces where those audience are are not being served someplace else that's why Sometimes things move forward or don't move forward. That's why somebody might be fighting for or against. Maybe they don't love that show or they don't love that star or they don't think that it's going to do well for that 
particular demographic or whatever. There's so many different reasons. Again, those are, that's making the sausage. That's the whole other thing that's, that's underneath that people don't always hear about. You know, do we have the right audience? Are people showing up to us for this? Or can they get this better someplace else?